0: John chapter 5. Now, before we get to verse 19, and we're in verse 19 because we stopped with verse 18 last Sunday, I do want to set just a little context for the flow of John 5. Jesus has come to Jerusalem for a feast. We have no idea what feast, but as the chapter unfolds, Jesus miraculously heals a man, a sick man, at the pool of Bethesda. Now, since the healing took place on the Sabbath day, the religious leaders lose their mind. They end up getting stirred into a tizzy and they demand that Jesus justify what they consider to be an unlawful act. So, in verse 17, John, our author, records Jesus' answer to their questions. He says to them, verse 17, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. This is his answer to the criticism. Of his activity on the Sabbath. Now, in using such really a simple statement, not only is Jesus brilliantly challenging their faulty theology as it pertained to the Sabbath, he points out, if this was such a holy, then why is God working? He's always working on the Sabbath, on this holy day. But Jesus is also doing something else. He's establishing a correlation between himself and God which then is the justification why, why he's working on the Sabbath. So his point is twofold. You got the Sabbath wrong because guess what? God is always working on the Sabbath. Maybe you should reconsider that. Two, it's okay for me to work on the Sabbath because, well, I'm God. You see, the Sabbath was a day for man to cease from his work. Not to be holy, to justify himself before God, to earn God's favor or approval, but rather, he ceased from his work in order to recognize that the only way he might be sanctified is through God's continual work. Well, in verse 18, there is no doubt that what Jesus has just said hit home. For the proverbial rust nuggets hit the fan. Things go crazy. People lose their gourd. We're told, verse 18, look at it. Therefore, the Jews. From Jesus' response, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Now this word sought, the word speaks of seeking out a thing. The, the idea that's being presented is it that they're trying to kill Jesus? Rather, they're now actively looking for a way they could justify killing Jesus. They're seeking a reason. Now, on a side note, I love the fact that Jesus didn't back down from an angry mob who wanted to kill him. I know that's kind of a simple point, but I find it insightful as you learn about Jesus. You know, there's this chapter. Jesus doesn't back down. He doesn't run from a fight. Instead, the chapter, the rest of the chapter, records a lengthy sermon that Jesus gives specifically to these angry people, aimed at elaborating on his relationship with God being his father. It's almost as like Jesus is saying, you're seeking a reason to kill me? <laughs> okay, let me give you one. He doesn't back down from the fight. As residents in a lost world, a lost world that is growing ever more hostile to anyone willing to stand for truth, I find Jesus' willingness to speak to an audience he knows was hostile. I, I find that to be an example to all of us. Now, here's the point, and you should know this up front, full disclosure. If you make the decision to stand for truth, Don't be surprised when the mob ultimately kills you. It's what they did with Jesus. You'll get murdered on Twitter if you stand for the truth. Here's why I find Jesus' example so encouraging. Really kind of amazing. While Jesus knew that this group of religious leaders, Jesus knew that they were going to reject him. He knew the end of the story, right? He still took time to speak to them. And why? Because Jesus came as their Savior as well. Like, I find that to ooze grace, honestly. For if it was me, right? And I knew how the story ended. Then no matter what I said, this group of people were going to crucify me, I probably wouldn't have wasted not a moment of my breath conversing with them, right? Probably how you would have reacted, but not so with Jesus. It blows me away that knowing they would reject him, Jesus still took the time to minister to them, to reveal himself to them, to present the truth. Please understand that no man and the final judgment or woman will ever be able to make the claim That they rejected Jesus because Jesus never took the time to reach out to them. No one will ever be able to blame Jesus and the judgment. Now keep in mind, as we get to this passage of scripture, that the larger point Jesus is making about his divinity was not lost on the, the Jewish leaders these men were were absolutely tracking with him and they fully understood his larger claim to be God, that he was making himself equal with God. Now, to this point, it's always strange to me when I encounter someone, typically of of a different faith, whether it be a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon, a Muslim, or a secular academic, someone who tries to make the argument that Jesus never claimed to be God. And you will run into these people Jesus never actually claimed that he was God. Well, the problem with that is you completely overlook moments like this one, where not only is Jesus clearly making the claim, but even his biggest critics so understood it, they wanted to stone him for blasphemy. Jesus claimed to be God. And the evidence is the reaction of the mob. In actuality, throughout the rest of the chapter, Jesus will double down and then triple down on this point. Now, if you're a note taker, let me give you an easy three point breakdown to Jesus' sermon. First, in verses 19 through 23, we have the claim. You can just kind of refer it to that the claim. Then, in verses 24 through 30, we have the implications, the implications of the claim. And then finally, in verses 31 through 47, we have the witnesses that validate. Not just the claim, but the implications. So the claim, the implications, the witnesses. Let's begin with the claim. Verse 19 of John 5, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, The Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. In these verses, Jesus makes three profound points as to the nature of his relationship with God the Father. First, Jesus is clear that the Son and the Father we were completely unified in purpose. You might want to write that down. Jesus and the Father were unified in purpose. Jesus said, look at it again, most assuredly I say to you, the Son, and he's talking of himself, can do nothing of himself. But what he sees the Father do for whatever he does, speaking of the Father, the Son does also in like manner. Jesus' point is that he and the Father operated in complete concert with one another. Jesus never acted independently of the Father, but they operated in lockstep. Once again, Jesus doesn't mix any words, does he? Whatever, he says, the Father does. Whatever it is, the Son also does in like manner. Now the implications, the larger point that Jesus is making, is that the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda taking place on the Sabbath, why had Jesus done this? Well, one reason. God the Father wanted him to, told him to, directed him to. Jesus always acted under the directives of God the Father. Secondly, Jesus says that the Son and the Father, not only are they unified in purpose, but they were distinct in role. Distinct in role. Now, note the presentation of what we refer to theologically as the triune nature of God, the Trinity, or or the fact that his existence as one God is revealed to humanity in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, understand this concept is ultimately anthropomorphic. I know that's a big word, but what anthropomorphic means, it's a literary term, and what it describes is the attributing of human characteristics to what is not actually human. The Trinity is based in, in an anthropomorphic presentation of God. Now, you see, in presenting his divine nature to God, to man, using common human terminology, and what common human terminology does God use to reveal himself? Father, Son, right? In doing that, God was affording finite pea brain men. A true but limited glimpse into something that transcended human language or even our basic capacity to understand. The fact is, it's impossible for the finite to fully grasp what is infinite. Like, think about that for a minute. If you were being finite, able to grasp the infinite. It would require this of you. You would have to possess infinite knowledge of infinite things, which then by definition would mean you're no longer finite. You're infinite. Also, that makes you God. Like This is why the infinite God articulated what was necessary using terms that humanity could, at a minimum, find to be relatable. My point is that Jesus was not God's Son, nor was God his Father in a literal sense. Instead, these terms are used to affirm that Jesus and his Father were both of the same nature. If you were the son of something... You are of the same nature as that thing. So these terms are used to illustrate, to affirm that Jesus and God were of the same nature, meaning Jesus was just as much God as the Father. But these terms are used to make sure we understand that the two were completely distinct relationally. So there was a difference. They're fully God, but distinct in role. Jesus and the Father we're the same, but as it pertained to this divine community and the triunity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all possess different roles within the heavenly community. Now notice, Jesus says, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do, only to then add, right, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself does. As the Son, there is no doubt that Jesus lived to honor His Father who loved Him. But Jesus is also saying that to honor the Father that loved Him, He operated in total submission to His Father's directives. The Father you might say, established the objectives. But it was then Jesus' role to carry forth the mission. It's a radical and often underemphasized point. But Jesus literally did nor said anything on this earth that wasn't first dictated to him by his Father. It wasn't as though one member of the Holy Trinity had gone rogue. They're working together. In context, Jesus is telling us what? That he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda, not just because God wished him to, but God directed him to. Finally, Jesus tells us, not just are they they unified in purpose and distinct in role, but Jesus finally says that the Father and the Son were equal in power. Jesus says, for as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. Since God is by definition supernatural, in the beginning God existed. And then God created the natural order, meaning God supersedes the natural order. He will never violate it, but He does supersede it. So if you you see something happen that supersedes the natural order, your logical conclusion should be, that God got involved. It's a natural and logical uh, idea, meaning that in seeing a supernatural work, the man being healed at the pool of Bethesda, the logical conclusion should have been what about Jesus? He's either God or operating under God's direct authority, his identity. Sadly, while these men marveled at what Jesus did, they remained willfully ignorant. Don't forget, and I think this is sometimes important to remind ourselves, That Jesus is speaking, so the audience, right? The audience, it's a group of Jewish theologians. I think that's why sometimes this gets really deep and heavy. Jesus is talking to theologians. His audience was the religious experts, the top academics of his day. These men in the crowd were intellectuals. They were brilliant when it came to the scriptures. I bring this up because Jesus here, in this statement about the the equality of power, Jesus is actually playing off of a common belief within theological circles during that day. And the belief was that certain miracles... Now, you look back at the Old Testament, and and, and miracles happened. but, But the Jews believed that there were certain miracles that were like a special classification that could only be attributed to the direct involvement of Jehovah. Certain things that only God could do. For example, the pervasive understanding was that it was only God that could open the womb to bear life. That that was a miracle unique to God. Man could try his hardest. God yielded that work. It was also believed that only God would have the clouds open to provide life-giving rain. Remember back to stories with Elijah and Elisha where there was periods of drought where God closed up the clouds. It was only God who could open them. So only God could open the womb to life or open clouds to life. But they also believed that it was only God that could open the grave to life and the resurrection. Well, Jesus affirms this last conclusion. Right? He says, this was a theological affirmation to their beliefs. He says, the Father raises the dead. You guys know it. He raises the dead and he gives life to them. But the statement that immediately follows would have sent a shockwave through these theologians. Jesus says, even so, the Son gives life to whom he wills. You see, Jesus here is claiming to possess the very resurrection power they only believed God possessed. I imagine his audience was stunned, shocked, aghast at at what he was saying. And then Jesus, he takes this idea one step further. Look at verse 22. He adds, for the Father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Not only does Jesus here claim power over life and death, but don't miss it. He's also claiming his power extended into the eternal realm as well. Well, it's the role of the Father to raise the dead and give them life. It's Jesus who decides who receives life at the final judgment. How interesting that while Jesus only acted according to the directives of his Father. He's just getting on telling us this. He then adds that all judgment had been committed to the Son by the Father. It's one of his roles. Now, for a moment, indulge me. I want you to try to visualize a day that will happen in your future. There is a day that will happen in your future, and let me describe it for you. You breathe your last on this earth, and I hope it's painless and that you're surrounded by loved ones. But you breathe your last on this earth only to, in an instant, awaken a whole new reality. For death is not the end of man, but a transition in life. And, And what you're immediately met with is a heavenly scene. A judgment scene. And there's a throne. And on that throne sits a man. Who looks no different than you and I. A normal looking man who bears scars and wounds. Jesus, sitting on a throne. That that day, friend, is in your future. Now this statement, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him, intended to be a, a bit of a shot across the bow of these religious leaders. The word honor here literally means to set a specific value or a price upon something it means to attribute appropriate worth at this juncture the religious establishment had been justifying their resentment and animosity towards jesus as being in defense of god's honor they thought they were defending god and yet jesus here is telling them that this is not how god viewed their behavior Since Jesus and his Father were unified in purpose, distinct in their roles, but equal in power, he's making it clear that how they treated him was the way they were treating God the Father. Now following this claim, an undeniable claim as to his divinity, Jesus is now going to explain the implications of this. Verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him Who sent me has everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment. Also, because he is the son of man. Now, Jesus is pulling no punches when it comes to the way he's addressing this religious crew out for blood. He says, I say to you, he who hears my word, and what's he referring to? The things he's just said about himself. He who hears my word and believes, not just in me, but in him who sent me. You know what you have? Everlasting life meaning you shall not come into judgment, but have passed from death into life. Now, Jesus is saying here that there were serious and eternal consequences to the decision that these men were making and would make. Like Jesus is telling them here that their momentary choice to either accept or reject the claim Jesus was making to be God would have Everlasting implications. Notice the interesting tense that Jesus uses in these verses. When he says, he who hears my word and believes, understand Jesus in the tense is referring to something that's not one time, but is active. It's continual. A better translation of this verse would be he who continually hears and continually believes. You see, Jesus is not referencing a one-time act, but a lifetime exercise. And yet, this ongoing activity, it does yield an immediate result. Do You see the change in tense. Jesus continues by saying that this person, the person who's continually hearing and believing, his claim to be God, right, has or presently possesses everlasting life. This is not a future result. It's an immediate gift. Well, you should be excited that this means that you will not come into a future judgment. The reason you won't come into a future judgment according to Jesus is what? Not that he will grant you eternal life or everlasting life once you've died, but the reason you'll be spared a future judgment is because you have everlasting life right now. Today, in the here and now, you will not come into judgment because Jesus says something has happened inside of you where you have already passed from death into life. Don't miss that. Now, we have to kind of ask, how does that happen, right? How do we who are dead go from dead to death to life? Jesus kind of answers here this unspoken question. If you want to know, When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, those who hear will live. You might want to underline that. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, those who hear will live. Now we must ask, who is Jesus referencing when he speaks of the dead? It's a logical question. Well, clearly, this can't be those who are physically dead. And why is that? Well, it would be impossible to hear the voice of anything if you were dead physically, yet alone the voice of the Son of God. That's just logical, right? You see, when Jesus says the dead, it seems in context that he's actually referring to a living person, a person who's alive physically, but who is dead spiritually. Let me give you an example of this. In Matthew 8, verse 21, we're told that one of Jesus' disciples said to him, Lord, let me go and bury my father. I want to follow you. I want to be on your team. I want to be on your crew. Uh, But let me go and bury my, my, my father. I just got word he's dead. I need to go bury him. And then we're told Jesus said to him, well, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, clearly... The dead can't bury the dead in a literal sense. Jesus is speaking of a living person burying a physically dead person. And yet there's a spiritual death implied. Also, notice the interesting use of this phrase the dead will hear the voice, will hear. This phrase is a verb, which means literally to attend to, to attend to the voice. In other places in the New Testament, the word can be translated as hearken or to give an audience to. The idea implies a decision of the will of the one who's dead. Which further implies that the person Jesus is referencing with the phrase the dead is physically alive. We on the same page there? Again, this kind of takes on a deeper level in light of the miracle that Jesus has just performed at the Pool of Bethesda. How can the dead hear the voice of the Son of God? Well, in much the same way that a broken man can be made well by hearing an impossible command arise. You see, in response to a desire of your will, to hear the voice of Jesus, when he asks the question, do you want to be made well? Well, what immediately results? You might be spiritually dead, but you still possess a will. So it's in the act of one's will, your decision to hear or to give attention to what Jesus is saying. What results? You're going to live. You see, the word of God, in response to the will of man, causes the dead to rise to life. We have all kinds of phrases for this. Rebirth, regeneration, The spiritually dead being raised to being now spiritually alive through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The implications here for you and I are, they're simple, actually. I know that's some heavy theology, but the implications are not all that deep. They're pretty point blank. The question that you have to ask yourself in light of what Jesus is saying is do you want to remain dead right now or be alive." Like, yeah, yeah, that matters for eternity. That's true. But, but please understand the question is relevant to right now, to this very moment. Like, do you want to continue to roam this earth as a dead man walking, oblivious to the reality around you? Or do you want to hear the voice of the Son of God and have this thing happen inside of you so that you're now alive for the first time. So that you can truly see the reality around you. See, your willingness to believe in Jesus' claim to be God will directly impact whether you are a dead man walking or he makes you alive in him. When Jesus here, before we transition, when he attributes this title uses an interesting phrase here. The son of man. You know, Up until this point, he's been the son of God. Now he refers to himself as the son of man. Note, his point would not have been lost on the religious scholars in front of him. In Daniel chapter 7, let me just read you a bit of, of Daniel's vision. He says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the son of man. This is where the phrase is introduced. Coming with the clouds of heaven, He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought Him near before Him. Then to Him this Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom shall not be destroyed. See, the Jewish establishment were looking for the Son of Man to establish a kingdom sent from the Ancient of Days. And in using the phrase Son of Man to Himself, the audience would have known what He was referring to. Verse 28, do not marvel at this, or literally stop marveling. You can imagine that that the crowd, their, their jaws were dropped. He says, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can't of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. In these verses, Jesus continues to unpack the implications of his claim to be God by now affirming two unescapable realities about your future. Everyone wants to know what the future looks like, right? Well, Jesus tells you two things you can take to the bank. One, as it pertains to your future, your physical death is not the end of your existence. At some point in your future, everyone who's ever lived, that includes you, will experience a resurrection. And because you experience a resurrection, you will live forever. Jesus says the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Two, as it pertains to your future, not only will you live forever, But you will face one of two very different types of resurrection. Jesus says those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now that's a little confusing. And so I want to just take a minute and kind of break down these two classifications. Really, it's two classifications that all of humanity fits within. There's not a third. There's not a gray area. All humanity will fit into two classifications of people. Who will experience, according to Jesus, resurrection of life? Which sounds pretty awesome, right? Well, Jesus says, look at it. Those who have done good. Now, in the Greek, this phrase, those who have done, is one verb, poeo. It means to bring forth. This Greek adjective, good, is agathos meaning of a good constitution or of a good nature. Jesus is saying those who have brought forth a good constitution or nature will experience in a resurrection life. Now, who will experience the resurrection of condemnation? Jesus says those who have done evil. Now, in the Greek, this phrase, those who have done, (laughs) it's an entirely different Greek verb. Prasso which means to be busy with, or to practice. And and then this Greek adjective, evil, or follows, it means to be worthless, or bad, or wicked. Jesus here is saying that those who practice wickedness will experience condemnation in their resurrection. Now please notice that Jesus is establishing a direct contrast between these two classifications of people who will experience very different resurrections by using two different Greek words. Now, where this gets confusing is that those two different Greek words, we've sadly translated into English with the same phrase, those who have done. This is one of those moments that's what's being communicated ends up lost, literally lost in translation. While condemnation is determined by what you're doing, practicing evil, eternal life, according to Jesus, stems from what you've been made into. In the first, those who are resurrected to life are people who have brought forth a good constitution. While in the second, those who are resurrected to condemnation practice or actively busy with worthless or wicked things. In the first, Jesus describes a person who's been made good. While in the second, Jesus describes a person practicing evil. We try to help you kind of dig into what Jesus is saying here. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus uses these same words. Let me read you a passage. Even so, Jesus says, every good tree, agathos, bringeth forth, poeo, good fruit. But a bad tree bringeth forth, poeo, bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Well, you can make the argument, life is a reward for those found to be good. And condemnation, the result of those who practice evil, the key question we should ask and consider, how is one found good? I get the practicing evil thing, right? But I want life. So how am I found good? Look, look back at what Jesus said in verse 24. He says, I, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes, and him who sent me has... Presently possesses what? Everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, which means it's not a resurrection of condemnation, but life, because you've passed from death into life presently. While everlasting life, experience presently in the life of a person yields a true and tangible result. It brings forth goodness. Never forget this. This life and present goodness we have. How do we have it? It is a direct result Of you placing your faith, hearing and believing in Jesus, his claim to be God, and the work God sent him to accomplish. That's how you have life, and therefore, that's how you're found to be good. In describing the effects of this life-giving work. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes this, and I think it's interesting in context. He says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then, and then check this out. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. You, you want to guess what two words are found here? Workmanship. We are his workmanship. Poema. It's the same word. We are his, his work. His workmanship. In another place, that word's translated as poem. That you're his poem. Something that he's writing. Something that's beautiful. And you've been, you've been created by this work in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. Agathos. Do you do this? Do you play a role in being found good? No, you believe in Jesus and then he does a work in you so that you're found to be good. Now, before we continue, maybe from just a, a larger, more, I mean, not as a theological, but just a larger, more macro, simple point to the passage? I really hope you know, if you take away anything, this life, please know, your life is not all that there is. If you're going to take anything away, take that away, that your life, even your death, is not all that there is. You will live forever. And not only that, but the nature of that eternal existence, whether it's life or condemnation, will be determined by a judge named Jesus. When you awake to the heavenly scene to see Jesus on the heavenly throne, the implications of Jesus being God and possessing that role is really twofold. He can either save your soul And provide life, life you already have, by saying, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. Or he can damn it forever. A resurrection to condemnation. You have an eternity that awaits you. And that eternity will be determined by what you do concerning Jesus. Why? Because that's the one you'll stand before. As we turn to verse 31, a transition occurs in Jesus' discourse. Like, it's almost as though in response to the, the incredible claims Jesus has just made concerning himself, and after explaining the implications, he picks up on kind of maybe the general sentiment of the audience. The, the people are standing there. Jesus is making some gnarly statements. And they're kind of looking around thinking, who in the world do you think you are? That's why with, with the, the remaining time he has with them, he presents some witnesses Don't take my word for it, he would say. Let me present for you some witnesses whose testimony validate everything I've just said. Verse 31, and we'll go through this quickly, by the way. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Yet there is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John. This is John the baptizer, not our our author, you have sent to John, and he's born witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. Now, knowing the simple reality that it's unwise to just trust the word of only one person, having another witness validates a claim. So Jesus calls to the stand here, John the baptizer. Now, back in John 1, verses 29 through 34 This is what we read. We read that John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. And then we're told that John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, remaining upon Jesus, and I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now what's important is that all of this happened publicly. This was not a private scene with just John and Jesus there was a multitude of people standing there that John is making these statements to concerning Jesus. So he calls John to the stand and said, you were kind of into this guy for a while, but he testified what? That I'm the son of God. So take his word for it, not just mine. Verse 36, Jesus continues, but I have a greater witness than John. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Now, aside from John's witness, Jesus now presents his activities, his works, as substantiating evidence. And we've already mentioned this, but to see the presence of the supernatural, one has to conclude the existence of the one that's supernatural. This is not the last time Jesus will point to his very activity as validating who he was. In Luke 7, Verses 19-23, through John's having this crisis of faith. He sends his disciples wanting to know of Jesus. This is what Jesus says to take back to John. He says, go tell John the things that you have seen and heard. John wants to know, wants some evidence that I am the Son of God. Well, tell him that the blind see, and the lame walk, and lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended of me. You know, aside from Jesus' tangible works being evidence, I hope you know that as you go out and, and demonstrate Jesus and are challenged, present a witness, present evidence of this Jesus, that Jesus is God. You know the greatest evidence you have is your own testimony? Well, I know he's who he said he was because I've experienced his work in my life. I was once blind, but now I see. I was lame, but now I run. I was dead, just like you, brother. But I've been made alive. Never underestimate the evidence of your own transformation as to Jesus being real. Well, verse 37, And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you. Because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe? who receive honor from one another, but you do not seek the honor that comes only from God. As Jesus builds his case, he calls to the stand his father, claiming that the scriptures revealed himself or validated his claims. Sadly, though, while these religious leaders, and I think there's a warning here for us, while they searched the scriptures, they knew the scriptures. They had missed the very manifestation of those scriptures when the word became flesh and dwelt among them. And if that's not bad enough, Jesus continues, verse 45, do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who already accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? As Jesus closes his argument, he calls to the stand the final witness, Moses. Not only did all the Old Testament prophecies point to Jesus as being the Son of God. But Moses, the greatest hero and maybe all of Judaism, Moses prophesied of a coming future prophet. Now, while well, I think it would be fascinating to take time to unpack all the various Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. Things they should have known, things they should have picked up on. I think it would be fun to actually get into the nitty-gritty of Moses and what Moses wrote of Jesus in the Pentateuch for the sake of time in which we're running out of, I want to address the rebuke here that Jesus levies at these men. If you look back over the verses we just kind of blazed through, you can't help but Jesus here, I mean, he is launching one verbal hand grenade after another at this religious audience as it pertained to to God, the, the God they claim to honor. Jesus says, man, you've neither heard his voice nor have you seen. You don't know God. When it came to the scriptures that they were so dedicated to obey, he says, you don't have the word abiding in you. And the strongest jab of of maybe all, Jesus says, you do not have the love of God in you. That's not a very seeker-friendly message. And aside from all of these things, the most important of all of the rebukes occurs when Jesus says, you search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. And then maybe underline this. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Please notice, as Jesus wraps up this this sermon, it was not insufficient evidence driving the rejection of Jesus. Instead, they were rejecting Jesus because they were simply not willing to come to Jesus as the giver of life. One of the larger, more complicated aspects of John 5, and specifically the scene at the Pool of Bethesda, and I've kind of kicked this can down the road, but one of the controversies really does center upon why Jesus didn't heal everyone surrounding this pool. With a mob of the sick and the lame, the suffering... Jesus comes, why didn't he heal them all? Like, why would Jesus just single out one person? Doesn't really seem like Jesus, right? Now, for starters, I do think it's stupid to get into the business of trying to explain why Jesus does the things that he does. Like, A, that's not my job, and B, it's a maddening game with few answers. I mean, if you're God, and you're gonna come to earth as a man, why not just come as a man? Like, why go through the birth canal? Why? I don't know. Yeah, I know that Jesus died on the cross because he loves me, but I can't tell you why Jesus loves me any more than I can tell you why Jessica does. It's a mystery, a divine one. Like, so it's a maddening game to try to explain why Jesus does what Jesus does. If you've got to die for the sins of the world, why the cross? I mean, I could give you a lot of whys. And yet... While I don't like attempting an explanation for all the unspoken reasons Jesus does the things that he does, I will concede that it is odd, right, that Jesus heals only this one man, especially in light of the fact that we have example after example of Jesus ministering to entire towns of people all through the night who would come out to be healed. Why would Jesus do it there but not here? Now, the reason I've kicked the can down the road the last few weeks is I I haven't had an answer. But the more I've chewed on it, the more that I do believe that the grand difference and the likely explanation for the Bethesda controversy is that any time a person came to Jesus for healing, Jesus always healed them. Like even if it required him to stay up into the wee hours of the night, Never once does someone come to Jesus for healing and Jesus is like, yeah, dude, peace. And yet, if you consider that, at Bethesda, that was not the scene, was it? It wasn't a mob of people coming to Jesus. Instead, the chapter opens with what? A much different scenario. It opens with Jesus coming... And seeking out this one man who, by the way, also wasn't looking for Jesus. It's a much different situation. Now, to me, the more pressing question in light of this is why didn't the multitude come to Jesus when they saw the man supernaturally healed? Now, yeah, I agree. Verse 13 tells us that Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. But but no that we don't know how much time transpires between the miracle of healing the man and Jesus withdrawing. I think it's an assumption to believe or, or to read into that. Not to mention, the text provides no indication that anyone at the pool was attempting to seek Jesus in order to be healed. Imagine that. A pool of sick people, Jesus heals one, and we have no mention of any of them being like, why am I waiting around for the stirring of the water? I'm coming to that dude. Not one mention of it. I simply cannot fathom Jesus withdrawing himself from a group of people at the pool of Bethesda that wanted to be healed. Well, this is just too much. I'm out of here. And you know why I know that to be true? Because I've never seen Jesus withdraw himself from anyone who is genuinely desiring him to heal. Their soul to give life. As I've already noted, John's overarching purpose for this original story was to compare the ineffectiveness of religion with the effectiveness of Jesus, the ineffectiveness of this pool of Bethesda, and the true and living water that Jesus would provide. A place where the disgrace came for a grace they were never given when grace came and gave it to all. But it's with that in mind that I'm convinced that the entire story also had very little to do with the man that was healed. It was instead maybe John's way of establishing for us a larger and I think very important parallel. Follow me. We're almost done. Consider that as Israel sat around a pool of empty religion that was powerless to redeem anyone from the effects of sin, Jesus came to the pool, right? And demonstrated a willingness to heal anyone that would desire healing. Now the comparison that John is making is actually between the multitude of the sick who still chose to be at this pool even after seeing Jesus work a miracle and these stubborn religious leaders who not just refused, but were resisting Jesus. You see, the reason neither group experienced the healing the man experienced really boiled down to one simple reality. Neither group was willing to come. They weren't willing. You know, in Mark chapter 1, we're told at the very end of the chapter of this cool story of a leper who comes to Jesus and he falls down before Jesus and he's begging Jesus. And this is what he's begging Jesus of. If you're willing, you can make me, you can make me clean. If you're willing, he's repeating it. If you're willing... You know, more often than not, our great question about God in light of our own dirtiness and sinfulness and wickedness is whether or not God would be willing to have any part of me. That God would be be willing to even touch me, to heal me, to include me as part of his family. For most of us, the, the grand question, is God willing? And yet I love it that Jesus, we're told, was moved with compassion. He stretched out his hand and he said to him, I am. And in that moment, he healed the man. I am willing. You see, friend, I hope you know that when it comes to you, you shouldn't question the willingness of Jesus. He's more than willing. The grand question is not God's willingness to heal. It's your willingness to let him. To come. And so, Father, Lord, I just, in this moment, want to let that thought ring out.